Good morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to take it up and turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2, where is where we'll find our text for this morning. If you are visiting with us, then uh, you'll want to know that we are in our Advent series called Simple Christmas. Uh, and uh, we, would, we would love for you to follow along with us. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find a Bible in the pew back in front of you. Uh, Luke chapter 2, it's the uh, beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book in the New Testament. Or you can just sort of Google it on your mobile device of choice and you can find it there. We'd love to have you celebrate with us and study together this morning. You know, I came across a story this week. I was reading the story of a young mom. She had... Uh, it was working through the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season, this young mom, and she was, had a, a finite amount of time, just a little window of time. So she took her three-year-old with her before she had to go pick up her other children from school, and she said, we were going to do some Christmas shopping. So she was moving from store to store, and as she was moving from one particular store to another, she realized that her three-year-old was no longer in tow. And so, as young moms do and, and young dads do, when they realize that their children are no longer with them, that they thought were with them, they freak out. Um, so she did as well. Um, and then she went and retraced her steps, and then there she found, there she found her son. And her son was looking at a, a, a window, and then in the window was, uh, was, was a manger scene, the nativity scene. In the, and, her, and so as she comes and she yells out her son's name, and she goes to scoop him up, and as she does... He says, look, mommy, it's Jesus, Jesus in, in the manger. And then she says, all caught up in the emotion of the fact that she had just lost her son and now found her son, says, where did you go? Don't, don't run away from me again. And she says, no, look. And he says, we don't have time. We have to go. And that's often how we go into the Christmas season, isn't it? There's so much hustle and bustle that even Jesus in a manger, we don't have time. We, we get so caught up in these things. And that's why we come this morning to our Christmas series that we've called A Simple Christmas. I was in conversation with someone this week who said to me, you know, it's a great idea. I hear you talking about A Simple Christmas, but it just seems like a lot of words. Like it just, it's a great concept, but it just seems so hard to do because there's so many things swirling around so many expectations of us, aren't there? Well, we're hoping that we can at least, at least in these moments, uh, take time to pause and to reflect and not to leave Jesus uh, on the periphery of our Christmas celebration, but rather to make him central to it. And maybe, maybe even this Christmas to take time to pause and to simplify, maybe even just with our time. And so what we've done is we've also created an Advent uh, uh, guide for you, for you to do individually or for you to do with your family. We would love to put one of these in your hands just as a guide, as a tool to be helpful to you as you seek to follow after Jesus and make him central to our Christmas celebration this year. I wonder if you, I wonder if you know the name of Philip Brooks. Philip Brooks. Philip Brooks was a a man, he was a pastor, and he was one of the most dynamic preachers and inspirational teachers of his time. But Philip Brooks was burned out. He had lost his fervor for the ministry. In his mid-20s, he had been called to be the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia. He, was, he had recruited a, a, a gentleman to join him, 
uh, Lewis Redner to be his worship pastor. And the church experienced exponential growth. They began with just 30 people, and in one year's time, they grew from 30 people to 1,000 people. It had to do with the dynamic of the preaching, and it had to do with the dynamic of the worship service and of the music, and people were coming. But then came cultural tragedy. The Civil War came, and the mood of the church shifted from the joy and the celebration to a heaviness and to mourning as women came in black because they had lost sons or husbands in the war. And yet Brooks continued to preach with all of his fervor, inspiring the church, trying to encourage the church during this draining time, and it drained him as well. And when the war ended, he thought that the vitality of the church would return. But after the war ended, it didn't immediately return. And then Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, and the pain of the country and of his church intensified. And Philip Brooks, though he was not the pastor to the president, because of his great oratory skills, was called on to do the service of Abraham Lincoln. And so he reached down deep and was able to find appropriate words to say for that particular moment. But later, he was burned out, and he couldn't rekindle his own spiritual flame. So he asked his church for a sabbatical, and he was granted that sabbatical. And as a single man, he chose to use his sabbatical time to go to the Holy Land, to go to Jerusalem. And so his sabbatical happened to cross over Christmas time. And on one particular Christmas Eve, that Christmas Eve, in Jerusalem, he mounted a horse and he went off for a ride. And as dusk came, and stars began to come out, he went into the small village of Bethlehem. And so there in Bethlehem, Philip Brooks, he found it refreshing to be in the very place where Jesus was, the very place of the birth of Christ. He found his spirits begin to be renewed on that Christmas Eve, to be so close to the spot where Jesus was born. And there there was the church of the nativity, and there was singing that was going on. And Philip Brooks, in 1865, recounted this journal entry on that Christmas Eve. He says, I remember standing in the old church in Bethlehem, close to the spot where Jesus was born, when the whole church was ringing hour after hour with splendid hymns of praise to God. How again and again it seemed as if I could hear the voices I knew well telling each other of the wonderful night of the Savior's birth. Philip Brooks then returned to Philadelphia, and within two years' time, he penned a poem that was later turned into a carol that was called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. This morning, we come to a simple town, a simple town, Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles open, will you join me there? Verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, 
who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to a firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Let's just pause there. First, I want to draw your attention this morning to a simple town. Joseph and Mary, of course, Mary, who is pregnant now with the Messiah, with Jesus, and Joseph, who is pledged to be married to Mary, they take a journey to Bethlehem, as you know. And they go to Bethlehem, not because Bethlehem was a fantastic place to go. They went under the order of Caesar. By Caesar's decree, they find themselves on a journey on their way to Bethlehem while she was significantly pregnant, ready to give birth. If it wasn't for the decree, Mary and Joseph would not have gone to Bethlehem. If it wasn't for the decree, they wouldn't have gone to go to the place where the, to, for the fulfillment of prophecy. But it was because of the decree that they went to this town of Bethlehem. It was a simple town. Or as Philip Brooks wrote in his carol, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Right? O, o little town, this small town, this sleepy town of Bethlehem. Nothing significant, nothing terribly important. It was a town. Now, we need to understand there was a little bit of poetic license for the way in which Philip Brooks went about crafting this particular carol because he probably was writing uh, about Bethlehem more as he experienced it when he went rather than the way it was probably when Jesus was there because there was a census and because the town would have been hustling and bustling with all of the people and after all, there was no room for them in the end, right? So there was a bunch of people that were probably filling the town or filling the streets of the town at the particular time that Jesus was born. But I, I'll give Philip Brooks grace as I hope you will as well. The major point of the carol was that this town was to be the place where Jesus was born. This small town was to be the chosen birthplace of the Messiah, where the hopes and fears of all the years were met in thee tonight. This is where Jesus was to be born. Bethlehem, Beth means bread. Beth means bread. Or, I'm sorry, Beth means house and Lehem means bread. Bethlehem is the house of bread. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, Bethlehem was a fertile place. It was a, it was, it was a place of enormous futility or fertility. It would have been maybe the bread basin where the bread of life was to be born. This is where Bethlehem is. A small town of, of great, enormous fertility. It was in Bethlehem. There is a bit of history with Bethlehem, though. If Bethlehem is where Jacob buried his wife, Rachel... It was where David, the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, would have been tending his sheep in the fields near Bethlehem. It's a, it is, as scholars suggest, that it is very possible that in those fields where Psalm 23 was at least reflected on or even penned where the Lord is my shepherd, as David in his youth was shepherding. And back in Back in the 8th century BC, then there was a prophecy by the prophet Micah about Bethlehem, about this small, sleepy town called Bethlehem. And this is what Micah had to say. This is the prophecy about Bethlehem. 
Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So Bethlehem had been defeated. Bethlehem was downtrodden. Bethlehem was of no significance. Bethlehem had been overrun. And Micah makes a prophecy about Bethlehem. And he says, out of you, Bethlehem, will come the one. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come the one who will rule over. This is what is going to happen. Bethlehem was small among the clans of Judah. It was a nowhere little town. It was five, six, maybe seven miles from Jerusalem. But Micah said, one day, one day from you, Bethlehem, the small, downtrodden, insignificant town would come a great work of the Lord. Out of you would come a mighty ruler. Out of you would become the Messiah from the house and line of David. Out of you would be the one of significance. The hopes and dreams of all the, year, of, of, all of the world would be in the streets of Bethlehem. So much so that the Jewish people had largely forgotten about it, ignored the prophecy, and yet there were, there were magi from the east who knew the prophecy and followed the star and that they would come to this little no, nowhere in the middle of nothing town called Bethlehem. This is what is going to happen. So what does this mean? What does it matter of this small, seemingly insignificant town? means that God, in his sovereignty and in his infinite wisdom, that God chooses and selects the simple and the small places to do big and significant things. That God chooses simple and small places to do big and significant things. And that's an important word for me and maybe even for you because... We often in our journey, in our Christian pilgrimage, think, well, I don't have much to offer. I don't know what my gifts are. I don't know. I don't have a lot of money to give. I don't have a lot of skills and talents and gifts and abilities. How can I possibly do anything that would matter for the kingdom of God? How is that possible? Maybe I'm too young. Maybe I'm too old. I think I'm washed up to be used for Jesus. It is in the small things in the simple things that God chooses to use to do big and significant things. It's all throughout the Bible that this is how God works. He uses the small and the simple and the humble and the outsiders to do big and huge and significant and world-changing things. After all, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Christians in Corinth, the church in Corinth, who says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. It's the, way that, it's the way of the economy of God, that it is God who chooses, who finds the small, the humble, 
that he chooses to rise up and lift their head in order to do significant things for the movement and the work of the kingdom of God. If you are interested in the movement and the work of the kingdom of God, then humility and simplicity is to your advantage. Then recognizing the smallness of what you have to offer and yet knowing the significance of who God is and how he can use these small gifts. I, I'm helping coach basketball these days, my son's team. And, and as we go, it's fifth grade basketball, right? So we're teaching them the skills. We're teaching them what it is to dribble the ball and how to do layups and how to do rebounds and all the different forms. And you know what we do? We do it over and over and over. And you know what they want to do? They want to scrimmage. That's what they want to do. They just want to run, and they want to run around, and they want to play all the time. And we say, no, you're not scrimmaging. What you're going to do is you're going to work on layups, and what you're going to do is work on ball handling. What you're going to do is do these things because it is the simple things. It is the little things when practiced over and over and over and over again will lead to success when game time comes. It's the little things, it's the small movements that will one day turn into great success during the game, I hope. Not after an 11-point loss yesterday, but I hold out hope. And so it is with faith. It is our small steps. It is our routine time with the Lord. It is as you are abiding with him. It is as you get up at 5 a.m. in order that you might make your coffee and spend time with your Bible open to start your day. It is as you pray with your spouse before you allow your eyes to sleep at the end of a night. It is as you do the small, simple things of faith that God will do significant things in your life and through your life for the cause of the kingdom of God. It is the small things. Because none of us were noble by birth. Very few of us are wise by human standards. Most of us come with what we got, and we show up with God and say, here I am. I don't know what you can do with this, but do something if you will. Can you? Bethlehem reminds us. Bethlehem reminds us that God uses the simple places and people to do significant things for his kingdom. Can I just take one, one more moment and speak to the Christmas collection? That's coming up in two weeks' time. And I, I want to address it in this way, because I know that not everyone here is of great wealth. Not everyone here has thousands or tens of thousands of dollars that they can just scratch off at a check. And so you're tempted to think that, well, my contribution, if I, can't, if I, if I don't have a contribution of significance, then I might not con contribute at all, then I can't be a... Bethlehem reminds us. There is no gift that is too small to participate in the kingdom of God. That if you have, please share this message with your children. That if your children have a bag of pennies and they say, I want to give this to Jesus, then bring the bag of pennies and place it in the manger. Just come, because there is no gift that is too small. All of these things are a part of how God uses his family to participate and move and do significant things. And every single gift, whether big or small, is a part of how God is changing and moving you and us as a church to go out and move, to change and work through Maple Grove, the surrounding communities, and even throughout the world. There is no gift too small. So please don't allow the evil one, to allow that way of thinking that, oh, you're not, you're not important enough. That, that gift isn't significant. If you bring pennies, if you bring $10, if you bring what you can bring, but you're not bringing it just to give to the church. You're bringing it as an offering of faith saying, I believe 
that it is through the, even the small things. Because Bethlehem reminded me that in the smallness and insignificance of these things, God can do amazing things. I'm bringing it as a gift and an offering of faith. It's a small town. It's a small town. But it's a small town that had a heavenly gaze. Verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around him, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared and an angel praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. An angel of the Lord visited the shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Keeping in mind that it had been 400 years from the last time a prophet of God had spoken until these, these angels began to start showing up in these different accounts. So here these shepherds were tending to their flock and all of a sudden an angel comes. And within moments there was a whole multitude of angels and the sky was lit with angels who were singing and praising the glory of God. I, I wonder... I wonder if the people in Bethlehem were able to see the light and hear the angels. I don't know. I, those are things that I just kind of ponder and I think about. I wonder, we'll never know, I suppose. Philip Brooks in his carol, A Little Town of Bethlehem, says this, For Christ was born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. Isn't that an interesting perspective? Do you, do you notice what he says? That it was not all, we know from the scriptures, from this very passage, that it was the shepherds who were, who were there, who were going and went to Bethlehem and were just outside Bethlehem and went to Bethlehem. We, we know that. But he says there was these angels that were there that were gazing upon. They were participants. They were messengers of the heavenly message of the good news. And they were there at Bethlehem. They were there around Bethlehem. And there they were. And Brooks picks up on this, that there weren't just the shepherds that went to gaze on what God was doing in Bethlehem, but the angels. There was a heavenly gaze. There was a heavenly audience of what was happening there. Peter, the apostle, he writes in his letter, in 1 Peter 1, he talks about that the angels long to look into how God is at work in the world. That the angels are longing to understand. The angels are longing and they were wonder and amazement. That there on that particular, that very first Christmas night, there were the heavenly beings. There were the cherubim and the seraphim. There was Gabriel and Michael, and they were, long, they were longing and looking to see how God, the one who they worship and praise all of the time, bringing praises to the throne of Almighty God, was at work in the creation that he had made. That there was the gaze of heaven, and with awe and wonder, they look 
to see what God is doing. They long to peer to see how God is moving and is at work. And it is with wonder and astonishment that they see that God was at work, that that, G, that Christ the Messiah had come, but he didn't come into, into kings or palaces. He didn't come with pomp and circumstance, but instead he came to this tiny little town in Bethlehem and he didn't go to the Marriott in Bethlehem. He went to a manger in Bethlehem. And they wonder with awe and amazement. You see, I think that Bethlehem reminds us or teaches us that God and the heavenly beings are gazing upon our acts of faithfulness in our lives. It means that even our, even our smallest attempts at following after Jesus have a heavenly audience. It means that with awe and wonder, the heavenly beings are watching God at work in you and watching you take steps of faithfulness to him. It means that the heavenly beings with awe and wonder are marveling at the fact that somehow God might be able to use a church on Rice Lake Road to have an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they peer down with awe and wonder that somehow God would use such a small thing to have such significance in the kingdom. It is as if they peer down to see people giving of their lives to go around the world to share the message of Jesus. And with awe and wonder, the heavenly beings look down and wonder and give glory and praise to Almighty God. I have a basketball theme running through this sermon this morning. I, I played basketball in junior high um, in eighth grade, and I was bad. I, I was not good. <clears throat> and I played all through high school, and I didn't improve a whole lot. So I'm not sure what that says about my hard-headedness or just my lack of skills. And now I get to coach. Uh, the discernment of the local basketball association. <laughs> I remember one particular game in eighth grade, and I had um, my youth leaders from church. They were volunteers, and there was a guy, a, a young man and a young woman. They were old to me at that time, but they weren't that old. And somehow they found out about my game schedule, and they came to see one of my games. And I actually got to play in that game. Um, you know what it did for me? I played so hard. I gave so much effort. And not that I didn't before, but I, I, just, I had an extra sense of effort. And because why? Because I had an audience. Because I knew they were in the stands. Because I knew they came just to see me. How much more, Christian, do you have an audience in heaven knowing that you have heavenly beings that say when one person comes to faith in Christ, they celebrate and throw a party? How much more are we, the church of Jesus Christ, knowing that they are longing, that they are cheering us on as we go and live out lives of faith? Is life hard? Yes. Are there challenges that are real and difficult? Yes. But you have heavenly beings that are watching, that are peering, that are longing, that are giving praise to God because God is using you. God is using us for the cause of Jesus Christ and they give praise to him. So keep going, Christian. So keep going. So don't give up. So stay steady at the till. I know life is challenging. I know sometimes it's hard but let Bethlehem be a reminder to you that you have a heavenly gaze 
that is upon your journey of faith, that is upon your church, that is upon our world, that is cheering us on and celebrating us on in faith. Bethlehem reminds us that heaven sees and celebrates the transforming work of Jesus in you and in our world. Well, there's a small town that had a heavenly gaze that produced a humble heart. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph, verse 16, found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they'd seen him, they'd spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, for all they had heard and seen, which was just as they had been told. Notice the hearts of the shepherds. They were men who were just in their fields doing their job like they did every, every, every night until the angels of the Lord came and gave them the message. And they went from just normal night to going to see the baby in Bethlehem and their hearts were rejoicing and everyone they told about the story was amazed because the hearts of the shepherds had been humbled to receive the message of the Messiah and the result was great joy and great celebration. Notice the heart of Mary. I've pondered this quite a bit over, day, over the years. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. I don't really know what that means. I've had a lot of different ideas and suggestions. But whatever it means, she was a woman who gave birth to the Messiah. And she watched as these shepherds out of nowhere came to see the very things that God was doing. And she, she held them, she treasured them. It is a humble heart that is able to treasure and see the very works of God in our lives. Philip Brooks in his final two stanzas of O Little Town of Bethlehem talks about human hearts. He says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Bethlehem begs a question. This carol begs a question. Is Jesus only a God who is out there or up there or somewhere? Or as he come in here? Because that's what's on offer for us. The blessings of heaven will come near and will be in, in your life if you will have a humble heart, if you will humble your heart like the shepherds, if you will humble and ponder these things in your heart like Mary, then you will receive the blessings of his heaven in our lives. 
If we will cast out our sin, you will enter in and we will and will be born in us this day. It was in 1917. Then you may know the name G.K. Chesterton. He was an English theologian and writer and other things. He had a wife, her name is Frances. And Frances wrote uh, a, a poem turned carol, which I was unfamiliar with until just recently. And the, the carol's name is called, How Far to Bethlehem? How Far to Bethlehem? I think it's a fantastic question. In the hustle and bustle of our Christmas time, with all the demands that are on your life, and they are, and they're real, how far to Bethlehem? How far is it for you to get to the place where you will humble your heart before Christ? How far is it for you to realize that there really is a heavenly gaze upon your life, that you have significant, that there's nothing too small, no act of faith that is too small that God doesn't see, that God cannot use. How far? How far to Bethlehem? Francis Chesterton writes, great kings have precious gifts, but we have not. Little smiles and little tears are all we brought. For all weary children, heaven must weep. Here on his bed of straw, sleep, children, sleep. God in his mother's arms, babes in the bride, sleep as they sleep who find their heart's desire. Frances Chesterton was a woman who struggled with infertility. And she said that it was always the nativity that gave her hope. It was always the as she longed for her to be able to have, hold a baby that was her own, as she longed for this opportunity, and yet God, and she wrestled with God, it was always by coming back to the manger. It was always by coming back to the nativity. She says, <clears throat> great kings have all of these, but I, all I have, all I have on offer are little smiles and little tears. That's all we brought. For there are weary children, and yet, the heaven must, for heaven must weep. That God sees the weary children and weeps for them and sees them and knows them. And yet in the manger, we have Jesus, the Messiah, who is in God in his mother's arms, granting the heart's desires. How far to Bethlehem, she asks. And her answer, not very far. Not very far. If you will just humble your hearts, then you're not far from Bethlehem at all and from the blessings of heaven that come as we remember Bethlehem. Bethlehem reminds us that God uses simple acts of faith to do significant things. Bethlehem reminds us that heaven sees and celebrates the transforming work of Jesus in your life and in our world. Bethlehem reminds us that the meek soul who will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Bethlehem, for this stillness, for the smallness, and for your greatness. 
that through the small things, through the simple things, through the weak things, you can do significant things for the glory of your name in our lives and in our church. Father, we pray that you will help us to be encouraged by these things, that you will help us to pause during these busy moments, during these busy times, and again, to come to the manger, come to the nativity, and find encouragement and hope and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.